call your attention this morning to some scripture found in the book of Judges, chapter 4. The title of this message is, The Lord Goes Before Us. The Lord Goes Before Us. Now that means before, in point of time, and in position. He knew of our going on whatever assignment he gives us before he gave the assignment. <coughs> and he prepares the way for us, if that need be. The Lord goes before us. We're going to read one verse of scripture to begin. That's in Judges chapter 4, verse 14. <coughs> Judges chapter 4, verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before us? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Consider all that's in those few lines. Remember also that according to the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, we find clearly spelled out in that chapter that there is a time to be under subjection and a time to get out from under subjection. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 makes known that there is a time for everything under the sun. So in our passage, Deborah reminds Barak, parenthetical, both Deborah and Barak are judges of at God's appointment at this time in Israel. Deborah reminds Barak that this is the day. That sounds pretty definite. It's time. It's God's time, for she said at God's direction, this is the time in which the Lord hath delivered. Do you notice that in the latter part of, or in the middle part of verse 14? This is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Hath delivered. That's already definite. That's not a drawing a bullet of venture to see what might happen. This is the day that the Lord hath delivered. By way of introduction for this message, the case of Israel being judged by those of his appointment must be examined so that we may gain understanding of the events and the circumstances that leads up to the deliverance that is here declared. All of this now for our learning. The book of Judges takes its name or its title from the 13 who were in their time raised up by God to deliver Israel in the declension and the disunion which followed the death of the leader Joshua the period of time when there was no single appointed leader. Moses, followed by Joshua, 
And after Joshua is dead, 13 different judges were used successively to judge Israel. Through these judges, Jehovah, notice throughout this, Jehovah is the L-O-R-D, all uppercase. Jehovah did faithfully continue his personal government of Israel. That's an important point to remember. During the time of these judges, though they were mouthpieces of God, they were his spokesmen, yet God was governing Israel directly. The key verse of this condition of Israel in the book of Judges is found in chapter 17 and verse 6. We've had that used in other messages in very fairly recent times. The key verse of understanding the conditions that Israel was in during this time is found in verse 6 of chapter 17. It says, in those days there was no king, notice lowercase king, no earthly king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was the general course of human society among them. Everybody could use this analogy. I've got as much right to decide as you do. There was no king. There was no officially appointed leader to dominate and to regulate. There are two facts that stand out. During this time, we find, first of all, the utter failure of Israel. And at the same time, we find the persistent grace of Jehovah exhibited toward them. Their utter failures and his consistency. In the choice of judges is illustrated or shown forth Zechariah's great word that he spoke in chapter 4 and verse 6. Listen what, to what Zechariah said, verse 6 of chapter 4. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And then we find the Apostle Paul in the New Testament speaking similar words in 1 Corinthians 1.25 where he said to the church at Corinth, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God is the superintendent. He uses men, though they be not wise in the ways of the world, Though they be not mighty, though they be not noble, yet God uses leaders that he raises up under his guidance and superintendence to see to it that the affairs of his people are cared for. That's a wonderful and comforting thought. To know that we don't have to depend upon the whimsical attitudes of men. I may not feel the same way every day as I do other days, and you may not. I may give directions or suggestions that may set well with you on a given day, but because of your disposition, there may be other days where the same instruction would not go over too good. So God doesn't depend upon the wisdom of men to see that his business gets done. He uses men as means 
but he's the director of all these activities. Now, the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges in its entirety, records seven apostasies. The word seven, does that have significant meaning? It's completeness. The book of Judges records seven different apostasies. Seven different servitudes to seven different heathen nations and seven deliverances from those leaders of heathen nations. You read the book of Judges with a careful mind and you'll find all of these sevens fully borne out. For a period of time, and God always names the number of years involved, because of Israel's obstinate, stubborn behavior in their failures and in their disobediences to him, he allowed them to be governed or ruled by judges of not very good reputation or capability. And they were, in many cases, dominated by those that would enslave them. Great persecution, all sorts of things happened. The times were not good during those times. And seven different heathen nations were allowed to dominate them. And the people would see the folly of their ways and in repentance and faith that God would give them repentance, grant them repentance, give them faith. They would pray unto the Lord and ask for deliverance. And he sent a judge to them that would deliver them. And for a period of years, things were well. And they became complacent and careless. And they began to drift away from the precepts that God would have them to live and regulate their lives by. And they drifted back off into apostasy again. They departed from the faith of the Lord. And they were taken over by another despotic heathen nation. And they were in great trouble for a number of years. And every time the number of years is spelled out, it's not always the same number of years, but there are seven distinctions in that book of Judges. That's what it's all about. There are recorded specific spans of time of servitude when Israel was oppressed, and there were specific periods of time for the deliverance so that peace and quiet prevailed among the people. When they cried out unto the Lord, he heard their prayer. And he sent them the right leadership. And they prospered. And there was peace and quiet. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 4 discloses a time that was pastime. What we read. Pastime. Remember, Deborah said, this is the day. Any time sooner than that day would have been too soon. Numbers 14 verse 40 says, And they rose up early in the morning and get them up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and will go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised. Listen, for we have sinned. We have sinned as an acknowledgement that we should have been up on the mountain where God told us to be before now. It's past time. Surely God has instructed, rather God has commanded, had commanded Moses and Israel that they were to go into the land 
and possessing. We're talking about the land of Canaan across the Jordan from the desert, from the wilderness. He had ordered them to go in and possess the land. That land is the land that he had given to Abraham and to his descendants for their continued eternal possession. And they had held back because they were fearful and were of little faith. Yet, had he not promised, why would they hold back? Israel should have obeyed the Lord and captured the promised land when he told them to do so. But they disobeyed. And that whole generation died during the 40-year wilderness journey. Is it any reason that the Lord would say, O ye of little faith? Now, to bring us to where we are in Judges 4, this is the time of the third of the seven apostasies that Israel has been subjected to. Verses 1 through 3 of the same chapter. Judges 4, 1 through 3. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ahud was dead. When the second judge, Ahud, was dead, the people did fearfully, evilly. And the Lord sold them. I'm talking about Judges 4, 2. And the Lord sold them. There's a significance in the meaning of that term, sold them. Allowed them to be overtaken and captured by a wicked king. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazel, the captain of whose host was Sisera. Isn't that strange? Which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. This Sisera, the captain of the army, had 900 chariots, and Israel was fearful. They doubted. They were concerned that they might not be able to go in and possess the land, so they were held for 20 more years under captivity. Now, what we presented so far, we see two different peoples in Israel. One believing and the other disbelieving. One group believed and wanted to move forward. The other group fearfully wanted to hold back. Deborah, appointed of God, had been judging the people of God, those that believed. Therefore, was closer to God and to his will than was perhaps Barak at that time. It seems to me, from reading verses 6 through 8, that Barak also knew what the Lord had commanded, but refused to obey that command. Let's read that. Verse 6. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, of the Kedesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun? 
and I will draw unto thee to the rivers Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitudes, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Has God not already promised that? And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. Barak knew what the command of the Lord was, and he refused to obey. Barak lacked courage from God to do what God had told him to do. I'm fearful that that might be a characteristic among many of God's people, even us on occasion, that we're fearful to step out and do what God told us to do. Therefore, Deborah spoke to chide him or to encourage him. Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded thee, saying, Go and draw nigh to Mount Tabor? Interesting thought. I got to looking at this and I went over the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and I find that Barak's name is mentioned in the Hall of Fame, but Deborah's name is not mentioned. Isn't that strange? Obviously, Deborah had a greater measure of faith given to her to believe God than Barak did. It appears that Deborah indeed had that greater portion of faith. And I would submit unto you without being chauvinistic, it is not wrong for women to be given a greater measure of faith than men may be given. But it is wrong for women to publicly lead men. So Barak's name is mentioned, Deborah's is not in Hebrews 11. Nevertheless, Deborah declares to Barak that he ought to go in the power of the Lord because, she said, the Lord, the Lord, is not the Lord gone out before thee, before thee meaning ahead of thee, preparatory to thee, in support of thee, the Lord is going to see to this activity. It's in his hands. He'll go before you. I think, and I believe I think that because the scriptures seem to indicate it, that before this day, it would not have been a good time to attempt to do the Lord's business because it was not yet time to do so. Hebrews 12, 9 says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father's spirits and live? When God brings chastisement upon us because of our rebellions to him, we should be willing to submit ourselves to whatever chastisement he brings our way. God blessed the Israelites that submitted themselves to the Babylonian captivity, for example. They went into captivity. While those that refused to submit fled instead into Egypt, and there they died. Think about that. Those of the children of Israel that submitted to that chastisement that was about to be put upon them by the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, those that recognized that God had directed their lives as Barak had been surely instructed and directed, he refused to operate, he ran away, he, he dilly-dallied around, he wouldn't go. Some of Israel submitted to that Babylonian captivity at that appropriate time, others fled. Those that submitted, God blessed them in, in Babylon. Those that fled to Egypt died in Egypt. Chastisement. 
I'd like you to turn now in a mo- for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah 27, I want to call something to your attention in relation to this very thing that we're talking about. Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 8 through 11. God will punish those that refuse to submit to Babylon, and he will bless those who do submit. He designed the chastisement that they that submitted to Babylon in captivity were to receive. He designed that chastisement for their good. God intended. Jeremiah 27, beginning with verse 8. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie unto you, to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and ye should perish. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell therein. The period of time of chastisement was the Babylonian captivity. And those that were led by the grace of God, given sufficient faith to believe God and submitted themselves to it, knowing this is the Lord's hand at work in our lives, God blessed them. And they were strengthened. And when the Babylonian captivity was over, they returned again and they rebuilt the walls of the city and they rebuilt the temples. They did all sorts of things serving God. Those that fled rather than submit to God's chastisement, they died. Jeremiah 42, verses 10 through 18, we'll not turn there now, but I would ask you to turn and read that. God will bless those that do not go into Egypt to escape Babylon. He will chastise those who seek refuge in Egypt. The sign of God's word coming true is found in verses uh, verses 29 through 30, of Jeremiah 44. The sure word of God. There God said, Pharaoh will fall. Now, our time is rapidly going. I want to hasten. Remember the Apostle Paul who received the commission from the Lord to preach to the Gentiles? But carefully examining those events, you'll find that Paul did not immediately go to the Gentiles. He waited until it was time for him to go. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, Paul's apprehension by the Lord as he journeyed to Damascus, his conversion. Notice I use the word apprehension by the Lord. The Lord reached down and grabbed him. In Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19, Paul was baptized by Ananias and received healing of his physical blindness that he had received. In Acts chapter 9, verses 20 and 22, Paul immediately preached Christ at Antioch of Syria in Damascus in the Jewish synagogue. Didn't go to the Gentiles yet. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul didn't get his doctrine from men, but directly from God in the Arabian desert. 
it is likely that Paul returned to Damascus at the end of the three years and preached the gospel there. And Acts chapter 9.22 fits this explanation as it reflects the growth, maturity of the Apostle Paul in the truth of God's word. His continuing Damascus after three years in the Arabian desert and preaching the truth led the Jews there to conspire to kill him. His contending for the faith, doing what he was inside to do, brought about the hatred of the Jews because the doctrine that he preached didn't suit the Jews. They were angry with him. In verses 20 through 30 of Acts chapter 9, three years after Paul's salvation was delivered to him, he leaves Damascus for Jerusalem. I'm hurrying through this, but you check the, all this out. Barnabas, who was a member of the church at Jerusalem, one of those first seven that were appointed, introduced Paul to the church in Jerusalem because they had never met him, but they'd heard of him. Peter and James are the only apostles present in Jerusalem at the time that Barnabas introduced Paul to the church. According to Galatians 1, 18 and 19, they accepted Paul based on the testimony of Barnabas, but the rest of the church didn't. Paul spends 15 days in prayer in the temple and in going in and coming out among them. Acts chapter 9, verse 28. And while at Jerusalem for those 15 days, Paul continued to speak boldly in the name of Jesus Christ and disputing with the Grecians. Notice the Grecians are Gentiles who could not answer his arguments. Therefore, they also conspired to kill him. But in Acts chapter 9 and verse 30, declares the brethren, that is the church at Jerusalem, sent Paul to Caesarea, a seaport city, and compelled him to return to Tarsus, his home city. Galatians 1.26 states that Paul afterwards came again into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is the area of Tarsus. This is when Barnabas got Paul to come help him at the work at Antioch. In none of these places did Paul receive instruction from men, rather he gave instructions to them. Paul willingly left Jerusalem for Tarsus, not because of the danger involved by staying in Jerusalem, but because he had seen a vision from God declaring that he should leave because these in Jerusalem would not receive his testimony. It's time, Paul. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 13, when Paul knew it was the Lord's will for him to go to Jerusalem, he went, even though his Christian friends begged him not to go because they knew the trip was for his own destruction. In Acts 11, 19 through 26, this a text agrees as well with Galatians 1. Now, after Paul returns to Tarsus, he remains there until Barnabas comes with him. Reading between the lines, so to speak, it appears to me that Paul and Barnabas remain in contact with each other, both grow in fellowship and in the faith. What Paul does at Tarsus is not recorded, and how long he stays there is not known. When the gospel spreads because of the persecution, that arises because of the martyrdom of Stephen, Barnabas is sent by the church at Jerusalem as far as Antioch to witness the grace of the word of God that it was being preached there. The work is great and Barnabas needs help. Therefore, he goes to Tarsus to get Paul and both remain at Antioch for a whole year. And it is from Antioch then that the Holy Spirit called and confirmed by the church at Antioch that these two, Paul and Barnabas, are to be sent as the missionaries to the Gentiles, which was Paul's calling to begin with. But it's the right time now. I'm all of this, laboriously, I've gone through this very hurriedly, but you read carefully in Acts chapter 19, uh, 9, rather, and you'll find the order of these things 
is because the Lord is superintending. He's directing the steps. In Acts chapter 15, verse 2, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small, a small dissension and disputation with them, those of Acts 15.1, those that came of Judea that came down teaching the brethren that circumcision was necessary to be saved, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Significant words in this statement. The, those from the church at Jerusalem, those of Judea came down. As the result of their questions, Paul and Barnabas were by the church at Antioch dispatched to go up to Jerusalem. I've talked about that many times. Any place from Jerusalem ecclesiastically is down. Any place else when you look toward Jerusalem is up. Not topographically, geographically, but the supreme location is where the Lord himself will rule and reign one day. And everything will be subject unto him and he'll be the head over all. So up to Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem. In its 14 years, it is 14 years now from the time of Paul's conversion to Acts chapter 15. Paul does not return to Jerusalem until this time and then only to defend the truth of the gospel against the Judaizers. Remember these Judaizers came down and said, all this is good, but except to be circumcised, keep the law, you can't be saved. Galatians 2.4 makes it clear that there will be no circumcision of Titus the people of Judea could possibly misconstrue that and think that Paul was declaring that circumcision was essential for salvation. This compares favorably to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 3, where Paul had Timothy circumcised. He did not have Titus circumcised, but he had Timothy circumcised. What's the difference? Because of the Jews which were in the those quarters, for they knew, they all knew, that Timothy's father was a Greek. Titus was a Jew. If not being circumcised would be a hindrance to the gospel, then Timothy would be circumcised. But if being circumcised meant that the observers thought that Paul believed circumcision had something, anything, to do with the gospel, then Titus would not be circumcised. And that's the reason for that. All of that is all to bring us to the point that we started out with at the beginning. Is it not time? Deborah was used of God to chide Barak. This day, this day hath the Lord delivered Sisera into thine hand. The very one that commanded the army of 900 iron chariots that the people of Israel feared to go up against caused them to be reticent and to withdraw and to hold back and so forth. But God has said, this is the day that I'm going to use you instruments for my glory, and we're going to show you that the Lord goes before you. And that's exactly what this message is all about. The Lord goes before us. When the Lord directs and sends us, us, any of his people, into a situation that we may never have been in before, whether it's to witness to a co-worker, a neighbor, 
a family member, a total stranger, or not to do so. Keep in mind that when God is in this matter, everything is all right. Everything is wonderful. So God tells us, go ye, in the commission that he gave to his church, relative to the conversion of lost sinners, relative to the preaching of the gospel, to the saving of sinners, relative to everything connected with the things of the Lord. When God says go, you go. When the Lord is ready for you to go, he'll not only prepare you to go, he will enable you to go, he will encourage you to go, and if necessary, he will drive you to go. We will. We will submit. May God help us to understand that and to know that even though we've covered a lot of ground in general terms and very little of it in specific terms, the truth of the matter is the same. When God would have us to go, he would have us to go. Today is the day. The scriptures are clear. Today is the day of salvation. Opportunity presented itself. You be sure that God will bless your efforts when you go in his name. When you go to declare in his name. When you seek his guidance and leadership and when you are submissive to his will and your will becomes secondary to his will. Lord, I don't feel good today. That's not, that's not an issue. That's not part of the equation. Go. Go when it's convenient and go when it's not convenient. Talk to your neighbor when you have opportunity. Not when you think all the circumstances are just right and all the stars are lined up and everything. Don't wait for those times. You go when God tells you. There is a time to go. There's a time to wait. God will make it clear to you. Make it clear to me. So may God help us to be as Deborah was rather than as Barak was. May we not be required to be chided and to be goaded into doing something. May God help us to be submissive and perfectly agreeable to do his will and be about the business that he's assigned. Let me ask you to stand together. We'll be dismissed together again after our lunch period for the remainder of the day. Brother Mike, would you dismiss us in prayer, please?